Well, we're trying to get to Exodus 20 eventually. It's our intention to uh, work our ways through the law and particularly the Ten Commandments and then, of course, what follows that in Exodus. But in order to get there, uh, we're not going to be there this morning. Uh, Start in Matthew, but we'll spend most of our time in Galatians. Matthew chapter 5 is a text that we looked at last week, verses 17 through 20. It is the most clear and important word that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount on the law. He says this striking statement in verse 20 of Matthew 5. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those words should make you stop and ponder. You should be wondering, what is this righteousness that I need? How much does it need to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Why do I need it to enter the kingdom of heaven? You should wonder this because the kingdom of heaven is basically the place that you will be for all eternity if you have this kind of righteousness. If you don't have it, you will be outside the kingdom, which Jesus describes as the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so it should, in a sense, be your life's ambition to make sure that you have this righteousness. And as we looked at this last week, when we considered the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you have to exceed, Jesus said of these people that they are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside they look good, but on the inside they are full of dead man's bones. And so Jesus is perspective on their righteousness is that they have none. So how should it be then for you that you have a righteousness that exceeds that? That should be the pursuit of your life. Galatians is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a Gentile church that was being taught That in order to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, they needed to keep the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. Not only that, they would need to follow the various laws that are contained in the law of Moses. Paul is writing against those who are teaching such such a doctrine. And as he explains to the Gentile church at Galatia, why that doctrine is false, he tells them about this righteousness that they need in order to enter the kingdom of God. And it is not a righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees had, it is a righteousness that exceeds it. In chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 16, Paul writes, we know that a person is not justified. That word justified means counted as righteous. 
being regarded as righteous by God, the one to whom it ultimately counts, it means that he regards you as possessing the righteousness that you need to enter into his kingdom. So Paul says, we know that a person is not justified or counted righteous by works of the law. You are not going to find your righteousness by being a doer of the law. But, here's how you have that righteousness that is counted to you. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting Him. Trusting the One who is righteous, the Holy One of God. And God grants to you that gift of all gifts, justification which means that you are reckoned righteous before God and you will receive welcome into his kingdom. Paul goes on, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. We might beg a question in your mind, what's the point of the law? What function does it have if it's not the means by which we attain our righteousness? What's the point of it? And furthermore, what's the point of spending weeks and weeks preparing to study it and then who knows how long to actually study it? Well, in chapter 3, verse 19 through 22, which will be our main text this morning, Paul asks the question, why then the law? Here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Having read this text, let us pray and ask God to help us to understand it. Father, again, we come to your word this Sunday, and we would ask you, we do ask you, to give us a right understanding that we might leave rightly informed about your law and about your righteousness and about Christ. Father, teach us in these next moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when studying a, a passage, there are certain questions that I'll ask of the passage that's before me. Questions are, What is this passage of Scripture saying to our world? What is this passage saying to our church? What is this passage saying to me? Now, generally, what I've just read to you in Galatians 3, 19 through 22 says this. It's generally saying that the law of God that was given through Moses to the people at Mount Sinai, the very same law that we're going to be studying in the coming weeks, served a very specific purpose in God's plan of redemption. 
It did not serve the purpose of giving life, but it served the purpose to show the people who were under it that they needed life. So, with that in view, what does this passage say to our world? Well, it says that if we try to take this world, which is fallen, degraded, seeming to be more so day by day, that's stuck in new iniquity almost every day, that is foul and depraved, if we try to take this world back to the law to show them just how contrary the ways of the world are to the law of God, then the world, if they have eyes to see, will see that they are living in death and unrighteousness. Some people would want to take the world back to the law and just leave it there and say, this is what you need to be. Follow the Ten Commandments. Do these things. This is what you need to be like. Some people want to make the world just conform to the law of God and leave them there to stay. But this text says something more than that. It says that anyone who goes to the law of God cannot stay there without staying under wrath and condemnation. You need to go to the law in order to get to Jesus Christ. That's what it says to our world. What does it say to our church? Well, specifically, it says to our church that as we go back to study together the law, that we have to be careful how we touch Mount Sinai. Recall what Israel was warned about as God descended there with smoke and flame and thunder and lightning. Israel was warned to put up a fence around the mountain and no one who went past that mountain would be spared the sentence of death or past that fence. In a sense, no one uninvited or no one approaching the mountain in an inappropriate way would make it out alive. And I think that as we come to the law, although we're not coming to a physical place, but we come to a powerful portion of Scripture, we have to approach it with a similar kind of wariness or sensitivity to the dangers that lie there. We can't go to it flippantly. In fact, we have to remember that when we come to God, we don't come to God through Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion, the heavenly abode of God, and we come there with the blood of His Son covering us. It says then to us, this passage, don't send people back to the law to stay there. For though at the law is only condemnation, we as a church have to go to the law in order to see Jesus Christ and how he fulfills the law. What does this passage say to you personally? Well, to those who don't believe, this passage would have you take a moment and think about the history of Israel. The very people who had the law of God in their possession literally written on stone for them. And for about a thousand years, lived with that law hanging over their heads, and never, not once, were they able to attain life through it. 
So if you don't know God, if He is not your Heavenly Father and you don't have a relationship with Him, do not think that you can achieve a right relationship with God based on your works. It is impossible. You need to look to God who makes and keeps promises and welcomes those who trust His Son. To those who believe, this passage says to you that you ought never be deceived by somebody who would send you back to the law of Moses and keep you there as it is serving as a necessary component to your right relationship with God through Christ. If anyone ever sends you to the law to keep you there and does not send you to Christ, you must not listen to them or be deceived. Certainly, Paul would never say to any believer that you just get to live however you want, that you get to live a lawless life. Paul himself says that he's under the law of Christ, but he's not under the law of Moses. That's the point. Christ is your Lord, not Moses. Moses didn't die for you. Christ became a curse for you to redeem you from the curse of the law. So trust him. Find your justification in him. Follow him further says to you, come and lay your burdens down at the cross of Christ. Find your freedom there, freedom from guilt and condemnation. And so Paul, as he writes this text, is addressing the question, what purpose does the law serve? Some would say the law serves the purpose to have you achieve your own righteousness. Those would be the Pharisees. That would be Paul before he met Jesus. But when he met Jesus, he counted all of his previous works as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And Jesus has already said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is not making the case that you just need to do better than the Pharisees or try harder. We're helped if we think for a moment about the context of where the Ten Commandments Land in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel were, of course, redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. They were rescued from the clutches of Pharaoh. And as God rescued the people of Israel, he did that by his own sheer power and grace. It wasn't because of any goodness or righteousness in the Israelites that he did that for them, nor was it by their help or their ingenuity. He did it all by his power displayed in the plagues that afflicted Egypt, splitting the Red Sea and letting the Israelites go through on dry land. And it's just entirely his grace that he did it in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. But now, as Israel has now come through the Red Sea and they come to Mount Sinai, God is giving them the law. But in between deliverance, And the giving of the law, there's this period of being in the wilderness for about a month or two. And as they're in the wilderness, wandering through those trials and afflictions of going without food and water and the comforts that they think they had in Egypt, these trials squeeze their heart like a sponge. And out of their heart come pouring This vile bitterness and complaining and selfishness as they go without food and water. And they resort to grumbling, complaining, 
self-righteousness, pride. Israel reveals the kind of heart that they possess. But how are the people going to realize or have made known to them what kind of heart they actually have as they come to the presence of God as He comes to dwell among His people? How are they going to realize the kind of God that they have to deal with? They've seen His power. They've seen it in the plagues. They've seen it in the dividing of the Red Sea. They've seen His power over creation as God manipulates the waters and the beasts and the pests of the earth to afflict Egypt. He's seen His power displayed over the mighty nation of Egypt. He's seen, they've seen their provision Seen the provision of God and the manna and the water from the rock and the quail. But now, they need to come to know His righteousness, His holiness, His perfect standard. How is that going to happen? For them to know His righteousness or His holiness, they need to know His holy standard. And like Adam and Eve, they're not going to learn it by intellectual knowledge. They're going to learn it by experience, as Adam and Eve learned the knowledge of good and evil by experience in disobeying God. Israel is going to learn what evil really is as they're given the law. And the very standard of God is put in front of them. And they realize what is expected of them, they cannot provide. And what comes out of them is what God disdains. And it will turn that general presence of sin in their life into the specific transgression as they violate specific commands of God. So as Israel came to the law, they're being exposed to their own hearts and God's standard and how the two conflict. The law, of course, is a dangerous subject and something that we need to come at in the right way lest we misuse it and think that it gives us righteousness that we cannot attain or condemns us without hope of a Savior who has come. We have to touch the law the right way. I feel very intensely about this, and that's why we're giving uh, these weeks to preparing ourselves to come to the law. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because of what 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 states. It's talking about people who come to the law in an inappropriate way. Paul writes there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see why this is such a touchy subject? There are people who look at the law and think that they know how to teach it and they really don't have a clue what they're talking about. And I don't want to be that person. And I don't want you to be that kind of people. And so we have to prepare ourselves rightly for what the law is. Well, Paul goes on and says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So tell us, Paul, how do we use it lawfully? Verse 9, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Notice he says, the law is not for the just. It's not laid down for the just. Those who have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ and faith in Him. It's not for you to put yourself under the law in that case. But it's for those who are ungodly so that their sin would be exposed. The law then, as the law of Moses, as was given to the people of Israel, is no longer binding as the means by which we have a relationship with God. We come to God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. It's not saying that you have nothing to learn from the law. We let it point us to Jesus Christ, to His fulfillment of it in His life, death, resurrection, and teaching. Nor is it to say that God doesn't care about how we live. He cares about how we live in Christ but not under the law of Moses. The law as an agreement between two parties, which was ratified when Israel accepted the terms of the covenant and let the blood of a sacrifice be sprinkled on them and said, all this we will do, that is not a covenant that we are under any longer. My goal is to show you Paul's perspective on the law as he asks these two insightful questions. Why then the law, and is the law contrary to the promises of God? That's my introduction. (laughs) But I hope that it set us up to dive into what Paul writes here in Galatians and speeds our way through these verses. Paul asks asks in Galatians 3.19, Why then the law? He's asking that question because he's been dealing with this group of people that is asserting that Gentile believers must keep the law in order to be justified before God. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. And so some people might think, well, the law then has no purpose. It serves absolutely no purpose. But Paul is asking the question, why then the law? And he provides an excellent answer. What is the point of the law? If the law isn't for righteousness before God, then what is it there for? So Paul asks, why then the law? Look how he answers. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Before we understand why the law, we have to understand when the law Notice what Paul says. He says, it was added. That's temporal language, indicating that there was something pre-existing its addition. The law was added to something already present. The very chronology of history is a decisive proof about the superiority of God's promises over the law of Moses. Notice In verse 17 of Galatians 3, Paul says, This is what I mean. The law 
which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And he goes on, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. When we study the Bible, there is um, certainly value at times that we come to a text of Scripture and we just benefit from the truth there, is so warming to our hearts and we love what it states. But generally speaking, whenever we come to a text of Scripture, we need to know where it fits in the history of what God is doing. You need to know the arc of God's redemptive plan and purposes and where the passage you are reading fits into that plan. And that's why Paul is making this big deal about the law being added. He's saying something existed before that, and what existed before that was a promise. Before the law came a promise. It was a promise to Abraham, and you can find it in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and the promise was basically the promise of blessing. To Abraham specifically, he promised that he would inherit, or his descendants would inherit a land, the land of Canaan, that he would have a descendant after him. Actually, a multitude of descendants would come after him. It's a promise that God intended to make and keep. And at the cornerstone of that promise is blessing. And even God says that through Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed. And Paul basically summarizes the blessing as eternal life. Eternal life. Well, as you watch... Abraham's life come to pass after the promise. You remember the Sunday school story. Abraham and his wife weren't able to have kids, but God, by the power of his promise, give them a son, Isaac. Isaac and his wife weren't able to have kids, but God, by his power, through his promise, give them son of promise. Then comes Jacob, who, by God's promise, he receives 12 sons, who go into Egypt, and at this time, all God is doing is keeping his promise to what he said he would do. Jacob's descendants end up in Egypt, and for hundreds of years, they're there. After the promise was made to Abraham, as Paul says, 430 years afterward. For 400 years after the original promise, the descendants of Abraham are there without the law. And then they're led out of Egypt, they're led to Sinai, and now the law is added. And someone might ask, does the law being added afterwards nullify the promise that began this whole thing? And the answer that Paul gives is definitely not. Verse 17 again, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The fact that the law was added means that the law is not essential. The promise is. The promise is what is essential. But it begs us to ask, was it added to replace the promise? Was it added to achieve the promise? Was the law going to be the means by which Israel and the descendants of Abraham received the promise of God? Was that going to be it? Well, Paul goes on, He says, why then the law? It was added, why? Because of transgressions. 
because of transgressions. Transgressions is a specific word within that kind of family of words that relates to sin or iniquity, vileness. Transgression certainly is synonymous with those things and has the same similar kind of tone to it, but it has a specific application, not just to sin generally, but transgression is the specific violation of law. You may be heavy on the gas pedal, and you may like to go a little bit faster than the speed limit, but if there's no speed limit posted there, you may just know that you're a sinner because you're going way too fast. But if you see that speed limit sign, then you know, well, now I am a transgressor because I know just how fast I am above the speed limit. Transgression is the specific application of our sin to the violation of a law of God. All have sinned, that's definitely true. All of us possess that sin, and sin, we are told in 1 John 3, 4, is lawlessness. But how are we to know when sin was committed? Romans 4, 15 says, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That doesn't mean that there's no sin. It just means that with the coming of the law, there is now the specificity of your sin because you know exactly what law you are violating. Everyone sins. And with the coming of the law of God, now everyone is shown to be a transgressor. The law was given on account of, another way to translate that word, or because of transgressions. It's to meant to reveal sin as a transgression of God's law. So if you come then to the law of God encapsulated in the Ten Commandments in order to find your righteousness, you are going to find it is exceptionally discouraging if you have your eyes open. But if we just think through it for a moment, there might be some who could come to the law of God and begin to think of themselves as meritorious and righteous. For example, they may only pray to God alone, and so they keep the first commandment. Or they may have never bowed down to a graven image, and so they've kept the second. Or they've never spoken God's name lightly, and so they've kept the third. Or they've never worked on the Sabbath, and so they say, I've kept the fourth. Or they've got a good relationship with their parents, and so they say, I've kept the fifth. Or they've never killed their neighbor, and so they've kept the sixth, doing good so far. They've never committed adultery. And so number seven is okay. They've never taken their neighbor's ox, so number eight is okay. And they haven't lied about their neighbor in a court of law. Number nine is fine. Then you come to number ten, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's ox. I think, I've definitely done that. And my neighbor's wife and my neighbor's house, and their condo, and their vacation, and their car, even their dishwasher, (laughs) their bank account, you name it, I've wanted it. And there, all of your righteousness is cut to the ground. Paul even says that Until he knew what coveting was, he didn't really know that he was a sinner. And if you find yourself to be a transgressor of 
one law, James says, you'll actually find that you've broken all of them. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Why then the law? It was to reveal transgressions. And so if the law was intended to reveal transgressions, then we're woefully mistaken if we use it to attain righteousness. One theologian says, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. Paul writes in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Or Romans 5.20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 8, we've already referred to, Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law exacerbates our sin problem, not due to any inadequacy of the law, but because of our own sinfulness. When our sinful heart encounters the law, it is though sin quickens in us and acts of defiance rise to the surface and we become transgressors. If we left it like this, you might be thinking, still, well, why then the law? Was it just some kind of instrument God meant to torture us with? Like some domineering parent who gives impossible commands to their children just to see them fail and delights in seeing that their children are not as good as they are? I hope you know the answer to that question is certainly not. God is not a wicked, cruel God. Just suppose for a second, if you knew nothing about the law, would you be any less of a sinner? Would your sinful and corrupt heart be any better? No. God could have kept concealed to us just how sinful we are. But as you read the pages of Scripture, the whole Old Testament just has the aroma of the law throughout the whole thing. The smell of sacrifices, the, lo- the smell of thou shalt, the, lo- the smell of thou shalt not, the smell of you have failed, the f- smell of you have failed again all throughout the Old Testament. But God did not give the law as an end, but as a means. He gave it as a bomb siren to alert you to the danger that lies within your own heart. Or a smoke alarm that alerts you to the fire that's just burning right outside your door. It points you to warn you of the greatest problem. And it points you to the only one who can solve that problem. Remember, Jesus said that he came to what? 
fulfill the law. Look at what Paul says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. For how long? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The offspring, Paul makes crystal clear in verse 16 that it is referring to Christ. The promise had been made to him in the sense that he's the one that's going to fulfill all the blessing that God had promised, the gift of eternal life there in Jesus Christ who has come to complete the law. And the law was there until Christ came and he comes as the completion of it, the fulfillment of it, to bring us the righteousness we could never attain through it. He gives to us as a gift received by faith. The law was on a time bomb that was ticking down until the explosion of Jesus Christ comes into the world. And because he has arrived, we now look to him to deal with our sin. Because the law was given because of transgressions. But Jesus Christ came, why? To save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew says. So Jesus has come, and the law has fulfilled its purpose. And so now we relate to God through Jesus Christ and find all of our righteousness in him. Because the law was until Christ, we can understand that like when Jesus says that something greater than Jonah is here, and something greater than Solomon is here, and something greater than the temple is here, we can rightly deduce that something greater than the law is here. Because the law had no power to give life, but Jesus says, I live that you may live also. Don't have the time to dig into verses 19 through 20 with you, but let me briefly summarize. That's the enigmatic passage that says that the law was put in place through an intermediary and angels were there, and then it says that the Intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That basically means, as best as we can tell, that at the time of the giving of the law, God was there. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2 says that there were angels there, a multitude of angels at the giving of the law. And God, through the angels, to Moses, was giving the law in order to bring to the Israelites. And so there's this mediation that was happening. And as the mediation has happened... The Israelites are required to keep their part of the bargain. It requires two parties, ultimately God and ultimately the Israelites, mediated through Moses, and Israel needs to keep their part of the bargain. But God is saying, with the giving of his promise, that he alone keeps the promise. God is one. He's one party in the promise-making process. He's the one who keeps it. He's the one who fulfills it. The law says, you shall, you shall, you shall, or you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. With the promise of God, he says, I will, period. And he does it all. God is one. There's one party in the promise of God who keeps it. And we are the beneficiaries of it to receive it by faith. Paul goes on 
to ask the second question, and we'll just cover this very briefly. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Some people might hear Paul speaking and they would think, okay, Paul is holding out this way and the law is holding out this way of righteousness. Paul says righteousness through faith. The law says righteousness through works. And that is incompatible. And Paul would agree, but he would say the law is never holding out righteousness by works because it never was a law that could give life. Actually, those who have an inconsistent view are those who say, come to Jesus and earn your salvation. Those are the ones who have an inconsistent view because which is it? Is it by grace or is it by works? Paul was saying that the law was never really about works. It was pointing out our transgressions so that we could find righteousness and something better in the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, for about a thousand years of holding the law, possessing the law, had a thousand years to try to prove that some of them could be good enough to be righteous enough to be included in the kingdom of God. But you know how many of them earned their salvation through the law? Not even one. If they couldn't do it, we can't do it. Is the gospel or the promise of God contrary to the law? No. The law was put in place to show our transgressions, to lead us to Christ, to find righteousness in Him and Him alone. It says in verse 22... The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It's like a a fishing net that just wraps up everything under the sin of our violation of the law. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's to show that ultimately God gets the glory in fulfilling his promise and no human being will ever be able to boast before God for being good enough. Every last one of us who will be in the kingdom will say, God, you did it all through your son. Why the law? It's meant to reveal transgressions, show that we can't earn life, so that we can come to Christ by faith and experience righteousness through him. Last time I closed with John Bunyan, who wrote, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote another book I referred to last week, Grace of Bounty to the Chief of Sinners. It tells the story of his conversion, and he struggled through a time where he felt he was righteous, came to realize he wasn't, and now he was so besought in his heart by the vileness that he thought, could I ever be saved? And he struggled this, with this for some time, and he writes, What ground have I to say that who have been so vile and abominable should ever inherit eternal life? He knew his heart. He knew how wicked he was. And he wonders, how in the world could he ever inherit eternal life? That's what the law brings you to. Here's what the promise brings you to. That word came suddenly upon me. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans eight thirty one. The law brings you to your knees, realizing you can't earn your salvation. The promise lifts you to heaven. He says again, 
Bunyan does, I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart. Do you ever do that? Wander through the woods and just muse on your own wickedness and blasphemy of your heart? He did. He's considering the enmity that was in me to God. And then that scripture came into my mind, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 Promise speaks a better word than the law. But without the law, you'll never be led to the point where you know your need for the promise. Christ is everything that we need, but the law will point you to him. If you use the law for something else, you're misusing it, and you'll get burned. Let's keep this in mind as we go through the law together. Let's pray. Father, we want to handle your word rightly and understand it truly. Father, we pray that you would use the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets in our life in the right way. Father, we pray that you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that in him is all of our righteousness. Everything that is acceptable to you is in our Lord and Savior, in your beloved Son, Father, help us. If there's any righteousness of our own that we're trusting, would you just quickly get rid of that? Tear down any self-righteousness that we have. It's just a sham, Lord. Get rid of that in us. Point us to the righteousness that we receive by faith in Christ, that righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Lord, point us to that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.